Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books. This month I've been lucky enough to interview two of my favourite authors, Ellie Griffiths and Leslie Thompson. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, with some ideas for your reading and news of some books that are just out. Excellent. Well, firstly, I want to thank Tim. Tim, your favourite book overall last year, um, mine was Piranesi and yours was Early Morning Riser by Catherine Heine. And I've got to say that has now superseded Piranesi. Oh, I, great. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. And yeah. I do commend it to anyone listening. It's apparently simple. It's very readable. And everyone talks about... Duncan, the sort of woodworking guy. And of course, he is there and rather wonderful. But the point of view protagonist, Jane, I think is so droll and lovely that I've described it to people. It's like a mix of Joyce Grenfell with sex. So (laughs) (laughs) what's not to like? Yeah, well, I I think it's I've I've laughed a lot reading it, uh, which is always a good sign in the book. And... um, I mean, I, I'm not sure how 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 much depth there is into it. Sometimes um, there's some interesting ideas thought about, but uh, it did make me laugh, which I think is great. It really made me laugh. So I had to apologise to Richard sometimes because it's so annoying, isn't it, when you're sitting next to someone who's going. <laughs> Well, I had time. to read out bits the whole time yeah. because I, I just yeah. thought there's some, some great one-liners in there that, that need, but need, the bit need I, broadcasting. <laughs> I did love about it was the fact it's so apparently simple, but you're so utterly changed alongside your protagonist by the end. So, Good. Well, I'm delighted that. that you enjoyed it. So what else have you been reading, Susie? Well, actually, I've been reading so many because of Richard and I giving each other books for Christmas. But I'm just going to pick out my favourites. So besides what we've already talked about, um, and also I'm going to slide slightly over The Locked Room by Ellie Griffiths because that's going to come out more in the interview, I think. Yeah. But I will just briefly say one of the things I loved about it is that it is bravely set during the pandemic. And I found that alone absolutely fascinating yes. um, because I think Ellie kept a... a a diary during that time and there were aspects of it um that i'd completely forgotten that unease well, it's quite a difficult idea to 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 be a to do a, a to either and do a crime and solve a crime when you can't get out I mean, indeed that's quite, that's quite that's that's quite a challenge and carry on an affair but that's another thing um the other thing so here we are again tim i think you now know me well enough of the sort of books i'll enjoy because you also recommended utterly dark by philip reeve as your children's book choice of last year and i absolutely adored that as well and all i would say about that is what i found extraordinary about it is that the sea is another character within it. It's very, very temperamental. It's not necessarily a good character at all. Yeah. And I love the way it was written. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the, the, the bad characters aren't all bad and the good characters aren't all good. There's lots of shades of grey throughout the book. Um, and it's ostensibly a children's book. I mean, it, it features mm-hmm. a, a, a child as the, as the main protagonist. But of course, as we've talked about before, some children's books are absolutely perfect for more adult readers and um, just because they have a feature a child doesn't mean they're actually children's books absolutely 
Um, my other one is State of Terror by Louise Penny and Hillary Clinton. Um, it's because of Hillary Clinton obviously knows whereof she speaks. And apparently she's really good mates with Louise Penny, who's one of my favourite authors for her Inspector Gamache series set in Quebec. Um, wonderful, especially in audiobooks. Uh, I've probably mentioned that before. But anyway, so Louise and Hillary were chatting and Louise said to her, what keeps you awake at 3am? And this is the terror that Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, um, the terrorism that would keep her awake. And I can tell you, it certainly kept me awake. Um, I've never read any Louise Penny. She's 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 a good detective writer, is she? She's really good. But I think primarily she's a really good writer. And if you like, it's like the May Gray novels. May Gray obviously it's a crime novel but he's a very complex character and Inspector Gamache is wonderful and features in State of Terror which was I just shrieked when I came across this fictitious place well of course the whole thing is a fiction but it is based on sort of terrorism and so on and then suddenly Three Pines appears but I'm also going to talk briefly um, about two poetry books, which is completely unusual for me. It's not that I dislike poetry, but I, I just tend not to read that much of it. One is Men Who Feed Pigeons by Salima Hill. She's extraordinary. She was born in 1945. I'd never heard of her. And she has written in this book, Men Who Feed Pigeons, um, a series of like seven interconnected poems. And I won't be reading one of them because if you read any one, you think, well... Yeah, and and it's sort of accretional. By the end, you just think, wow, that is stunning. But I would like to read um, an, a, a poem from The Kids by Hannah Lowe. Now, if people are familiar with her name, it's because she, totally unusually, as Tim knows, won the Costa... Um, prize the overall prize the yeah. overall prize which yeah. you know the last time i think poetry has only won six or nine times um in all the years it's been going so that's extraordinary and, it's been, and, and two of those were seamus heaney and ted hughes this begins i love this because i used to take teenagers to the royal shakespeare company and so on to watch um henry v part one totally reminds me of this that's rsc and it was just the most stupendous day with Kenneth Branner was in the lead when he was a young chap. So somebody said, this is more like bloody dog walking than teaching, which is the little epigraph that begins it. You've got more dogs than you can count. Big dogs and small. One badass dog in headphones mooching up the aisle. A dog who's smuggled in a hot dog. Two loving dogs back row already smooching. Some dogs are up on haunches, barking. A dog or two already dozing, heads in paws, dogs sighing and dreaming. The other theatre dogs look down their snouts. A pair of tutting chow-chows, some slony poodles in the box. But when the curtains lift and your dogs are hypnotised, their ears like little hoisted sails, the wag of tails their shining dog hearts fling wide open they know these words these lines memorized like buried bones and don't you love your dogs so this is taking this is sort of mixing up the notion of dogs 
and and pupils and kind of just playing with the concept. Playing with the concept, hence the epigraph of... Um, this is more this like bloody dog walking than teaching. teaching. Yeah. Okay. And also, it's classic school theatre trip, which is why I referenced the Henry V at Stratford. Um, and what happened at the end there was I took these recalcitrant, largely boys, it just happened to be in that class, and they sat in the front row being really disaffected. And at the end, they stood... I mean, they'd no notion of what a standing ovation was and they were in the front row so they couldn't have seen and they actually began it. They stood and applauded. Well, even though they were bored rigid for the whole... They were not. They thought they were going <laughs> they got to it. be. They, they got it. utterly got well, it. And there's, I a, can't there's a fight, there's a good battle scene, isn't there? It's wonderful, but they also had pouring rain at a thing where that was extraordinary to see Kenneth Branagh through a sheet of water delivering his lines. And that's what theatre can do. And my heart did swell, not only because I too thought it was a stunning performance, but looking across this row at these boys and I thought, they've got it. They've they've had this experience and it was wonderful. Fantastic. So over to you. What have you been up to? Well, uh, I've been reading a number of different books. Um, the Voice, The Face by Martin Munkester. I'm, I'm, I'm reading that at the moment. Martin is a local... Uh, chap who who was a broadcaster for many years. You may remember him. He was on South Today at the very beginning, right back in the right back fifty more plus sixty years ago. I'm not Gosh. sure, a long time ago. Uh, right at his very beginning, and uh, he's also been, done lots of acting work and broadcasting and of various bits and pieces. Um, so he's had an interesting life, and I've been reading his 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 story, French Braid by Anne Tyler. Now this is uh, not out for a, for a few months. I managed to sneak an early copy out of the publisher. Um, this is, I think, one of the best books she's writ- written for some time. Gosh, um, I, I really like this. It's it's you know it's nothing that new. It's a it's a gently wry and and witty look at a three generations of an ordinary Baltimore family, um, and the, the point she gets at with the French braid is is how how patterns repeat themselves, but also how uh, when you unpick a French braid, um, you you have for the whole in the morning, having slept in it, you have the the undulations of of your hair stick and sort. So of, I didn't know what a French braid was. I thought it was a bit of needlework. No, well I didn't either. But it's <laughs> apparently it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a, something you do with your hair. Oh, and you you braid your hair and then you, you undo it in the morning and then it the sort of the kinks in it stay all day. And that's 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 her. That's her idea. That's why it's called French Braid. The third book, which I'm, I'm currently reading at the moment, uh, again, it's a book that's, that I managed to get an advanced copy of, and it's uh, Mother's Boy by Patrick Gale. Um, I'm only halfway through, so I don't quite know what's going to happen at the moment, but it, it's based on the life of, of poet and writer Charles Causley, who was born in Cornwall, and um, where, where Patrick lives. And it's it, he was born during the First World War, and it's it's a sort of life story of him, but it's about... The first half of the book, anyway, is, is about growing up in rural poverty uh, in, in that interwar period. Um, but I'm really enjoying it so far. I used to use Charles Causley, I think. Isn't that ears like bombs and teeth like splinters? Uh, something, something, never a boy like Timothy Winters. That I don't know, Susie. There you go. Well, you're the, you're the English teacher. I don't know. I, don't <laughs> I know should know, things. shouldn't I? <laughs> it's time for our interview. So... Um, Susie has interviewed Leslie Thompson and Ellie Griffiths at West Dean College, where they tutor a crime novel writing course. 
Sadly, I was unable to join her on this occasion, which is a great shame because they seem to have had a really fun time. Well, I am completely excited because I am back at West Dean. Now, I have trailed last month to listeners that I'm coming back to where I did my MA and Leslie was teaching on the MA a decade ago. I mean, this is really terrifying. Since then, Leslie has become stratospheric. I have been struggling on as bottom feeder, as you know. However, I love her books, and I'm also thrilled that I'm here with Ellie Griffiths. Um, And I started reading Ellie um, because the books that we're going to talk about principally are set in Norfolk, um, and I know you've got standalones, but these are the ones I love, and this is the series that's coming out, isn't it, in February? Yes, new one in February. So let's do it chronologically, because... Leslie, your latest came out in October. So can you just say a little bit about the series? Because, again, you have standalones, but I'm really interested in series crime um, at the moment. Serious crime. So kick off. Yes. um, Well, The Detective's Daughter is a series that's been running now for um, eight years. Uh, Well, the number eight came out last year. Um, I'll be starting number nine shortly. Um, The detective's daughter is precisely that. It's Stella Darnell, who is the daughter of a detective. Um, My initial title for the the series, well, initially the novel, was was the daughter of the late detective, because I'm a massive fan of Kathleen Mansfield, and she's got a short story called The Daughters of the Late Colonel. And I just always loved that. And anyway, my agent said, no, that just sounds like he's always late, the detective. <laughs> Completely through that. And she started, she just took it upon herself to call it the detective's daughter, and she was right. Um, but the point is, he actually is late, because um, Stella's father dies, and it's not plot spoiling at all, at the beginning of the first novel. And... Well, she has to go and see him, first of all, because he's died down here in Sussex. At the, um, it, well, he died in Seaford outside the co-op. Um, <laughs> he dropped dead. And it's not supposed to be funny. It's terribly Sorry, tragic. But you know I, did, me. I did rather line that one up. He yeah. has a heart attack outside the co-op in Seaford. My friend Domenica once said, um, <laughs> you know, the... the, the uh, Seaford Co-op doesn't get enough mention in novels, so this I'm trying Domenica to... This sounds really interesting. She does, I think she's wonderful. Yeah, she's yeah, so she's witty. A great, she's a good she mate. She sounds lovely. <laughs> um, I think we should come clean. I think we you have to actually, now. You do. I'm afraid we do. Uh, Domenica is otherwise known as Ellie Griffiths, who's sitting yes. beside me. Um, you may have guessed. I yes. know Domenica de Rosa sounds made up, but it is my real name. Yeah. So anyway, so we'll come... We've, we've actually blown that... I've blown that gaff. But anyway, so... Stella is not a detective herself. She's a cleaner. She runs a cleaning company, Clean Slate, and that's all she ever wants to do. She did not want to follow her father into the Met, which is what he was in, uh, much to his disappointment. And so, yes, he dies at the beginning of the novel. She um, sets about... Let me just wind back slightly to your choice of a domestic cleaner, because I think it's completely inspired. It's one of those things that you do a sort of, ooh, really... But say why you chose that. Well, I mean, it, it's, I saw a similarity to my mind. I mean, you know, the real life of, de- of a detective or indeed a cleaner is probably very different. But I saw a similarity in the restoration of order from chaos, which both roles bring. And also both roles have the right to enter lots of different people's houses, see lots of different ways of furnishing houses or flats or homes of different sorts, meet different people, 
And in Stella's case, there may well be a body in that cleaning environment. So it was as much that. It's also about the way in which you view the world. So Stella, you know, she looks into the darkest corners. Um, She's finger-testing every surface. She sees things that we wouldn't necessarily see. Certainly I wouldn't see. That's probably... I mean, I couldn't be... The cobwebs have grown in my study without me noticing. So I'm not Stella, I quickly say. But she would notice the smallest little detail... And I think one of the things about detectives is the way that they look at the world. Um, you know, how, what do, how do they see the world? And we also, do we see the world according to how, what we do? And I think as writers, we certainly do. So we're always ear-wigging for a start um, and noticing, you know, something being a bit out of the ordinary and thinking what a story might come from that. But if you were a post office worker, for example, delivering post... You know, would you see the world according to where the letterbox was in the door and the paths that lead to that door and the, the, the topography of the street? You know, just so I was very interested in that. So that's why she's and a cleaner. And also with cleaners, people say things in front of their cleaners that they don't even realise they like they're non-people. Yeah. Yeah. I always like it, Leslie. When you, the thing I always quote about you is when you say she cleans the crime stain by stain. Oh, yes. that's good. One. I think that's just yes. such a great. Yes, and line. that becomes her motto for detection as well as for cleaning. But initially, she she's a reluctant. That was another title, a reluctant detective, um, because she doesn't want to be. Never wanted to be a detective. She's going to clean her dad's house, put it on the market, sell it, because she's quite kind of straight like that, and she can't take on his death anyway. And then she finds a, his, an unsolved case in the attic and she starts to shred it but doesn't get anywhere and then starts to read it and then next minute she's, she's working on the case. Well, um, let's go over, to, since we've got a kind of order, let's go over to Ellie now. What was your jumping-off point, Ellie, for when you first thought of, of Dr Ruth and say a bit about her? And... The, the series that I'm probably talking about now is Dr Ruth Galloway, who's an archaeologist, and the first in that series is called The Crossing Places. And really, I have to say, this the jumping-off point for me was my husband, Andy, getting a new job or having a new sort of lease of life. So I had actually published before as, as Domenica de Rosa, kind of books about families, relationships, mainly set in Italy, which is, is where my dad was from. But um, And when I married Andy, he had a proper job. He was a lawyer, you know, in the city. But he'd always wanted to be an archaeologist. And I remember the first time I met Andy, he sort of said, oh, I'm, I'm not like all the other lawyers. I, I really wanted to be an archaeologist. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. Oh, bless him. And then he became an archaeologist, which kind of seemed a bit less sweet, actually, at the time. But I'm very <laughs> pleased he did that now. So he went back to university and, and trained as an archaeologist. I sort of got interested in archaeology. And one day, Andy and I were walking across Titchwell Marsh in Norfolk, based, you know, Susie, I think. Um, and Leslie knows, because I've told the story so many millions of times. <laughs> She's smiling. So we were walking yep, across Titchwell it. Marsh in, 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 with, with our children who were then young. And uh, Andy happened to say that prehistoric people, because he was taken to telling me about prehistoric people at the time, prehistoric people had thought that marshland was sacred because it's neither land nor sea, but something in between. Liminal. They thought it was a liminal zone, literally a bridge to the afterlife. Neither land nor sea, neither life nor death. It was an in-between place. And that immediately gave me the idea for a crime novel. And, And I really did suddenly conceive of this character Ruth Galloway who's a forensic archaeologist because I'd learned from Andy there were such things and that she works at a made-up university called the University of North Norfolk um I was telling this story rather as I often do and our friend uh, William Shaw was there and William said to me 
so did Ruth lead you to Nelson? And I thought, that's exactly what happened. I thought, where's Ruth going? And Ruth was going to her office at the University of North Norfolk. And as she walked along the corridor, outside her office, there was a detective waiting for her called um, DCI Harry Nelson. And he wanted to help because he'd found bones buried on the marshland. And I knew from Andy that archaeologists, forensic archaeologists, were often called in by the police when they find buried bones, because they can age them, they sort of know whether they're there by accident or whether they were deliberately buried. They look at something sinister called the grave cut, and they can tell these things. So I knew that's what Ruth would be doing, and she goes and looks at these bones, um, and actually they turn out to be 2,000 years old. But Ruth is drawn into the murder into a very complicated relationship with the policeman. And I've just written the 14th book in the series, which is out next month. Unbelievable, <laughs> isn't it? I, I'm interested in the series Detective Book because always there has to be huge characterization. And in both your cases, there's a love interest that when I've read reviews of the books seem to almost take precedence over anything else. So let's go back to Leslie again. And was that intentional? And so you've got Stella and Jack. So can you just say a little bit about Jack? Um, because yes. in both your books' cases, I think these are people that are so identifiable and yet particular. So anyway. Yeah, um, I didn't start off thinking they would be a love interest uh, as such because... I was thinking about the development of the story um, and he is a necessary character for reasons I won't talk about because it will plot spoil. They couldn't be more like chalk and cheese, but what became quite evident to me early on is that because they were chalk and cheese, he was, he was an, under, well, he is an underground uh, train driver um, on the district line on the dead late shift, which I always feel I have to say in that voice. <laughs> um, <laughs> old crawl. Yes, <laughs> and that is it. He likes the darkness, he likes tunnels, uh, and he likes to be alone, and all the, you know, being a train driver gives him all that. And he's fanciful, and he, he, he talks to ghosts, he hears ghosts all the time. And then on the other hand, you've got Stella, who's absolutely irrational, stain by stain, um, and, and doesn't let her emotions get, get involved. And so as a team, they were a gothic art. They met, um, and they could solve cases together. They, they, you know, they, I mean, Stella likes a spreadsheet. Jack likes to kind of just imagine. Um, but between them, as often happens, one borrowed from the other, and gradually they did meet, if you like, in the middle. Um, and then I began to think, I wonder whether it be, how would this work if they actually cared for each other. And I, I think I gave, I mean, it, I, it's difficult to remember, but I think it was Jack who realised first, which would have made sense, that he liked Stella. Stella backs into everything, wouldn't, wouldn't see that straight away, although she's becoming more re reflective to some extent. But I was getting all the time from, uh, you know, all the different channels that we get, stuff about our books from i was getting when are they going to get together I was when are they going to do whether this it was actually your readers i, I think my readers played quite a big part yeah, where i started to think well this is happening and i think it would be really good if it did but then you've got to think about what happens next and i won't go into much more detail about that but it's it's not enough that they live happily ever after because the series is continuing and i didn't just want it to be you know and in fact when they do get together because I will say that, there's no point in not. Um, I did get 
I did get people writing in and saying, oh, it's boring now they're together. I don't oh. want them to be normal. And I, but they are know, so different. Yeah. So it still keeps it alive. But and it does. It matters to people, doesn't it? Yeah, it really, really matters. Yeah. They become, you sort of like knowing one bit of your brain it's fiction, on the other, it, you really care, these people. Mm. And the way you talk about them, both of you, these are completely characters that you're not shuffling like chess pieces. They have their own volition. No, right? absolutely. Um, I mean, I mean uh, you know, and we feel that about each other's characters because we know each other's books incredibly well. I'm actually, you actually remember the characters in my books better than I do in terms of names. You know, <laughs> the name, name. David we were from driving Ghost here to, today and I said, well, that's just like David in Ghost Girl. And Leslie said, who? Who are you talking about? <laughs> oh, she God, did, that's his name. She yes. did know who I meant, yeah, but, but I just did remember his I name. I couldn't think it's of yeah. funny, And they you, are like people that I we've... think you soak it in as a yes. reader more, don't mm. I think you maybe do, and maybe you... We've talked about this before. I think possibly I'm scared by scary bits in your books that I'm not by my books because no. I'm kind of in control yeah. of mine. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I could be reading one of well, your books thinking, oh, my goodness, because Leslie is very, very good at scaring you. And you can be reading yes. something and you think, oh, my goodness, this is frightening. But I remember being you know, terrified when Ruth discovers Cathbad in her kitchen. Oh. He just materialises there. And you didn't particularly think of it as a really scary scene because no. you had Cathbad in your mind. But when I reread the books recently, I thought, oh my God, yes. Very, I mean, I wasn't scared this time because I knew Cathbad. But... And it is the truth, you do get to know people. Like I think I said to you, Leslie, that I used to be scared that I would find Jack under my bed, which is kind of quite a Jack thing to do. And now I kind of wish he would be because <laughs> I've kind of fallen for him like your, your readers have. It. But it's interesting how you've both got characters that you can completely plausibly keep apart. Um, so, Ellie, do you want to take over and say how you've managed? Because we're all going, will this be the one? Will yes, this be yes. the one? I mean, Ruth and Nelson are, are not together yet because for the very good reason that Nelson is married and uh, um, ha- has children with his wife. Um, and for most of the time, has, has been quite happily married. I always knew that there would be a relationship, possibly slightly differently from Leslie I had, possibly also because my first four books had been kind of romances. So we always knew there would be a long story and that they would have a relationship. But, you know, it's one of the wonderful things, and I feel so lucky, I really do, to write crime fiction, because um, only in crime fiction or serial, genre fiction, I mean, probably um, science fiction's the same or... Um, is you can write a series. Yeah. You know, if you don't write in that genre, you, you you're, something can happen to your character, somebody can get pregnant, something can, and then that's the end of the book and you don't know what happens. So in crime fiction, it's both a privilege and quite a challenge because, like Leslie says, you know, when her characters got together, well, then there's something else next, you know, uh, and, and it's not plot spoiling too much to say Ruth has a baby in the books. And it can't just end there, because the next book... And the the wonderful thing about that is the baby's got older and older and is now 10, you know. And at every stage, you have... um, Which is 11 in the new book. You know, you you have a new challenge, you know, to to get through. So that's the wonderful thing about writing a series. So I always knew there would be a long story between Ruth and Nelson. I didn't know, as you don't, do you, that I would get to write it. You know, I wrote one book. I had a one-book deal for The Crossing Places. Um, when When it sort of became clear that people quite liked it you know then I got to write another one but you never know do you Leslie from from book to book you know you'd ever know whether you're going to be able to finish the story that's quite uh that's quite um you know it's a bit of we talk about suspense with our students that's suspense for the writer isn't it because you don't know whether you're going to get to be the one to finish the story really and you know it takes quite a publisher you know and shout out to my my publisher's quirkers just who stuck with me through all this 
all this long Stuck story. With you, they're rubbing their hands with glee. <laughs> well, well, maybe now a little bit of glee. <laughs> now, so we've dealt with sort of character and romance and so on. I just want to be a bit slightly ploddy. This is bear with me at home. This is an author thing. I note, Leslie, that you've stayed pretty much true to the past, the use of the past tense in your narrative. Mm. And Ellie, you're still present tense with the Ruth Galloway, certainly. Um, So I want to know, was that a conscious... I mean, obviously it was a conscious decision, but what's the difference? What what does that bring... Or do you think there is a difference between what yours brings, Leslie, and also... I think there is a difference, and thank you for saying it was a conscious decision, because, frankly, (laughs) I don't think it was. I, I think that came easier to me. And I have now thought since, because I, you know... I mean, the Ruth Galloway books are in the present tense, and I really notice how much I like that present tense. I'm not sure there's better or worse, but I'd love to try writing in the present tense. That would be a future experiment. Um, it, I can't do it with this series. You can't really no. swap. It's not sort of done, really. It, so it wasn't a conscious decision as much. I just it felt... It just was the natural voice that came out, I guess, just as I don't easily write I in the I first person. I do that... Very specifically, I've done it in the, the detective series um, from the point of view of a murderer, very specifically also, because I didn't want people to know who the mur- what, what, what um, gender the, the murderer was. And I wanted to give as, way as little as possible about their identity because they were in the novel. But no, I th- it, was a, it, it just fell naturally into place, but I would like at some stage to write in the present tense to see what that feels like. Because it seems so suitable to me of the... The pristine Stella, it just seems ah, appropriate. Okay. And for me, I can't imagine Ruth um, in her slightly shambolic Chris Packet in the back of the car <laughs> ex- writing in anything other than the present oh, tense. So, that's so interesting. And, and <laughs> thank you, Susie, for putting such a good gloss on this because, like Leslie, I wasn't totally really aware of doing it. I think, as I said, I'd, I'd written four books before and they'd all kind of been romances. And the present tense is very, very um, it, it, popular in that genre. You know, she looks, she sees, she, you know, that sort of, I hate the, the term really, but women's fiction, you know, is often written in the present tense. And so when I wrote a crime novel, I, I just thought it was, you know, if I thought about it at all, I thought it was, you know, quite suitable for, the, for a crime novel because the, the reader finds out everything at the same point as the characters. There's mm. no hindsight, there's no looking back. So, you know, now she looks, she sees, she, that has a different sort of sense of, of danger to it. Um, but I didn't realise until I'd written The Crossing Places that it was quite unusual for crime fiction. Um, a bit less unusual now, but at the mm. time, very, very unusual. Mm. And I still get readers who say, I couldn't read this book because it was written in the present tense. I had to throw it across the floor and be sick or whatever they say. <laughs> and, you know, in which case I'm terribly sorry. But, you know, it, and now, having written 14 books in that way... I do, I think about three books in, I said to my editor, Jane, I've been very lucky to have the same editor for all the books. I said, do you think I could swap to the past tense? Because the present is quite difficult sometimes. And you can get, it's a bit like being hit over the head with action all the time. And if you go into the past, you can sort of find yourself in some sort of awful, pluperfect nightmare where you keep saying, he had, 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 had that Mm. happen to him. Um, So I did say to uh, Jane, you know, do you think I could swap to the past? And she actually said, I think you could. I don't think anyone would notice. But within the series? Yeah, within the series. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah. Mm. I I disagree with that. But then I thought that almost a superstitious thing that I thought that Mm. I might have been able to get Ruth's voice 
if I was in the present tense because I was so used to it being the present. And I do think, you know, a wonderful thing for me as a writer has been how much people have related to Ruth. And I do wonder if that is a bit that the present tense is, is, is to be thanked for that. But, you know, I write another series, The Brighton Mysteries, which are in the past tense, Works perfectly. And yeah. actually, you know, it's lovely to be able to say things like, if he'd known what would happen, he'd never go in the Well, house. I was going to say... You, you can't, can't have any hindsight. No, you can't. I mean, I allow myself about four of those in the whole series because you've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, you do have like, to be careful, otherwise you, know, you sound like one old was free. Free. time. But yeah, know, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But you can do that. But actually, I mean, you've reminded me, um, we mentioned it a couple of times over the weekend, we... Um, we finished it about two years ago, didn't we? But we wrote a story together. Yes. Uh, which, which is set here. Uh, Although we slightly disguise it. It's at West Dean by calling yeah. it East Dean. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very kind. Yeah. Yeah. see what yes. you did. Um, yeah. but we, which, which involves Stella and Ruth meeting on a short course. Extraordinary. Yes, um, fun, and that was in the past tense, was it? I think it was in the past tense, but we did discuss that. The, yeah. the really fun thing about that, though, was that we wrote this to get... We, you know, I wrote a bit, and then Leslie wrote a bit, but we had to write about each other's characters. So yeah. I had to write about Stella, and Leslie had to write about Ruth, and it was so interesting, yeah, it wasn't was. it? It was, it was fascinating. And it showed us both how well we knew each other's character. Well, we did sometimes say, no, I don't think Ruth would do that, I don't think Stella, that did come... But it was rare, actually. We and mostly was, got it right, didn't and, we? And you sort right of saw one, them... Yeah through the other person's eyes. Like, I think I said, oh, you know, Ruth was a bit uh, overawed by, by Stella being so tall, because Stella's tall. And I have to say, Leslie's a little bit taller than me, mm, though I'm always quite surprised when, when I look at it, us in a reflective that, that she is quite a lot taller than me. But, you know, that would be something Ruth noticed. And I think Leslie was like, oh, OK, so she would be... And I'd had Ruth being a bit nervous coming into the, to the um, university setup, And Leslie said, well, actually, Why she's a she? university lecturer. She wouldn't be nervous. No. She would be so much more at home here than Stella and I thought Leslie's exactly right and Stella was nervous of Ruth because she was a doctor Stella Dr Ruth yes exactly. and, and would therefore be very clever and Stella went straight from school to run a cleaning company the, you know, so she was very nervous of this woman and quite kind of kept away but they end up being flung together because of various events that happen and find in each other things that they didn't expect to find which I mean, it was a really interesting experience it was a lot of fun it really was and it was great fun to to be able to just be Stella for, for a little mm. bit and, uh, you know, just just have her sort of wonderful character. You know, you could move, move her around and make her do things. I really Absolutely. But also we interrogated, not, that's not necessarily the right word, but we just really saw, we obviously have read each other's books, but we saw our writing in the making. Mm-hmm. So there was one scene, and we were telling the students this, that, well, they're, they're in the kitchens and they've got to escape into an underground tunnel. And you had them, I forget, but I think you had them straight in there and straight out, and it was near the end. And I, which is me, because I prevaricate and I kind of go digress, and, 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 and it's the suspense thing, but, I, you know, I can really maybe over-egg it. But I said, no, I think they should find there's a secret passage, and then they should get behind the fridge, and then they should do yes. this. And we ended up with a really good compromise, but both of us were discovering, because I think Domenica really gets on with the story. It gets on with it. And, you know, she's, yeah. um, that was me clapping my hands to show, you know, that on we go. cracking on. Yeah, yes. and often my editor, not the one I have now, but would say, you know, move on, move on in the margins, and cut, cut, in other words. And I could do it now, so I'll stop. But 
Uh, so I learned to cut, if you like, and it's so and interesting because that's you know that's nice of you to say, but it's also a fault of mine because I do see the finish line and I go for it. My editors always saying, "Hang on, something else needs to happen. You can't hurry it." Through. I'm more like that. I'm always having to add words at the end, and in fact, I quite often say to Leslie, "Oh my goodness, Leslie, what else can I write?" And Leslie says, "Take her back to her house on the salt marsh. Take move back there. It's spooky. Take your time there." And you know, I do take her advice. So in this. It was true that I was saying, okay, so then they go through the secret tunnel and they find the murderer and they pop out. And Leslie's like, yeah, but maybe on the way <laughs> they could get lost and fall in a pit and have to... And actually, it was much better for them doing a bit of that, getting lost and falling in the pit. But possibly I got them out of the pit, which... Oh, yeah, no, definitely. No, it definitely needed that. I think um, the present tense, as you say, lends itself, or lends itself in a good way, but also can chip up in that way. And one of the things I love about it is it almost reads to me like a television crime script oh, right, sometimes. Yes. So you've got, Ruth is in the car driving to university. Thank you very much. That's all I need. Yes. I yes. don't need to know it's raining or whatever. Yes, yes. I love that. Yes, I think you're yeah. right. And I think the pres- possibly when I write in the past tense, maybe... Maybe I do do a bit more meandering around the lanes. I don't really have to think about that. But my, I also read a children's series, um, A Girl Called Justice, and that's in the, in the past. And that's fun to write. I suppose I've written a few standalones which have been half past and half present. The one I'm writing at the moment, which is called Bleeding Heart Yard. Oh, is, good name. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely place as well in, in London, where it's a nice restaurant, where I kind of keep saying to my publishers, we could have a publication lunch there. Um, that's not my <laughs> Not midnight. That, it's like know, before or, times. Yeah. No, because I, my last book, um, Brighton book, was called The, Mid- uh, uh, the Midnight Hour. And uh, we persuaded, I persuaded our friend William Shaw to do a midnight launch for it, which Leslie and her partner very, very nobly came along to. Midnight's very late. It's Especially when you're over you know, 60. Yes, it's just bed, not. Bed and by half, you know, bed and by I half promised them that my next book would be called Tea at the Grand. Yeah, I would have that free. So, you yeah. know, I'm not having any more midnight launch parties. But yeah. So to go back to the, yeah, uh, Bleeding, Bleeding Heart, Heart Lane, Yard. Bleeding Heart Yard, it's partly, so the bits with the police officer, Harbinder, who's been in um, Stranger Diaries and Postgrad Murders, I'm in decor, are present tense. But the bits of all the other characters are past tense. So it's sort of like the, the detection is carrying on in the present and everything else is happening in the past. So I don't know how that's going to work that's out. That's really but tricky, But it's quite tricky, and, yeah. but also lots of fun. Yeah, good. So I get a chance to do a little bit of hindsight and say, whoa, if she'd known, she'd if she'd only known. the car. Um, lastly, let's talk about the research. Because when I think about your research, Leslie, certainly at the point where you were kind of kicking off when I was doing the MA, mm. photography seemed to feature an awful lot in when you were sort of scoping possibilities and when I read your books I have such a visual impression of where it is so is that just completely spurious um or or is this part of your research or what do you do it's very it's integral um my dad took photographs he didn't earn his living that way but he was an amateur photographer and very good we had a dark room or he had a dark room and I he taught me to develop photographs I took pictures. I was given a camera at an early age. I learned to frame pictures and then develop them and print them and see them. And that's just, I mean, now we've got phones and that's what I use. But um, one of the things I like to do when I'm writing a novel, if you like, it's scope the land, for want of a better phrase. So, you know, for example, when I was um, writing The Dog Walker, which was set 
quite a well it was in Kew not the Kew Gardens but in the area of Kew in some little some cottages by the river and a lot of it featured on the towpath and I know you're a dog walker too Susie and um, I was very interested in that time about how what dog walkers will do that other people won't do. I won't go into that now because that will be the classic digress. But I, I went there taking pictures. I always take, and, and it's not necessarily just pictures of landscapes or, or, or long views. It might even just be the picture of the ground beneath my feet, the pebbles, the worn t- um, slipway down into the Thames, the moss that's on there. And it's not just so that I have a record afterwards when I come home. It's it helps me to become immersed in the story, basically. So, and it does, it does affect the way that I see things. I frame the first chapter of my new novel. I can see it as a film. I haven't written it yet, but it's there as a film. And it, you know, it involves two children running across a field chasing a dog that's in turn chasing a rabbit. And I can see the whole thing. And I will write it, but it's framed with, in the distance, the silhouette of this building. Uh, and it's how, I, it's how I see, so that goes onto the page. So it's absolutely integral. Oh, I'm thrilled that wasn't just me going no. up a blind alley. No. That's lucky. And Ellie, what about you? How do you approach it? Definitely, for me, it usually does start with a place. So um, I suppose that's quite similar, though not as good a photographer as, as Leslie. But I do take pictures quite a lot to, to, to sort of keep something in, in my mind or but I also have a notebook and I'll, I'll you know make notes of places but definitely you know I was saying about the marshland was was the the, the beginning of, of the Ruth book and um the second one is is about sort of Roman remains in Norfolk the good thing about you know setting a series in Norfolk is there's so much there's so much a landscape there's so much history there's so much archaeology and legend so the legend you know and people live there a long time they remember legends and you know things are passed down so the third book has has remains from from the second world war so it can range across the millennia and the centuries but for me the place is really really important and you know I I do I've made up some places but most of them are real and then the legends are as real as a legend can be, I guess. For, for me, the place is, is very, very important. And I, I'll see a place, often when I'm on a train, actually. I don't know if you found this, Leslie. Going on a train, uh, because I think you pass things quite... Oh, like looking they're, into windows. And then they're gone, mm. yes. Mm. And I know... I do that all the I do, time. Do you have this thing where I feel like I know exactly what it's like to live in one of those houses? Yep. It's like a, a past life, you know exactly, and, and then it's gone. Yep. Something about that. So, you know, I, for me, the place does come first. Yes, the lighted, the lighted houses, the things you see from the bus. It's really fascinating, isn't it? I don't know if that's a writerly thing. Um, but I think, you know... I'm not sure it is, necessarily. I don't I mean, we know other writers, they're not, they're not necessarily as rooted in place. But equally, we do know writers, and we keep mentioning William Shaw, but, you know, he, his books are set, some of them are set in Dungeness, and he really makes Dungeness... A, yeah, a character, character, as we yes, often say. You know, but and it is at the end of the... But there's a very good Monica Dickens book called Man Overboard, where a man, I don't know if you've read it, yes. where he sees a house from the train and then one day he just gets off and goes to see the people in the house. So, you know, I think, I think she must have been that similar sort of writer. But I bet there's another one about house which has a... Um, can't remember that one's called that. That's right by the motorway, but obviously when the house was built, the motorway wasn't there, and obviously that's just stayed in her mind. She sort of had to go and write about it. So, uh, yes, it's it's great, isn't it? Having having that sort of 
mind. <laughs> I love it. Well, honestly, you've been so gracious and I'm so grateful to let me. Fun, fun, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Great fun. And uh, yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank and you, good Susie. Good luck with all the laces. Yeah, thank you, Susie. And good I'll luck with you as well. Keep yeah. everybody posted. So that was really interesting, Susie. One of the things I wanted to pick up on was, that, was the notion of um, series writing, which I think is really interesting. Um, and they, they talked about genre fiction, and, and they're right because crime fiction is one aspect where you can have you can have a detective which so, who solves lots of cases and sometimes endless cases, like like uh, Megre, who you referenced earlier, or or Rebus in the, the in Rankin. But um, this is the fourteenth book in the series, after all. Um, but of course, you can have genre writing like other sorts of writing which has which exists in in series form and and i think there is a real gain to be had from really being able to develop characters i mean okay so you can write wonderful novels which are which are nice and, and entire like like a good great film or something but also like a like a like a a box set or you know a tv series that could go on and have lots of series um I think you can you can really develop characters like you know like it makes me think of The Wire or something on on television, uh, where each series develops the characters that much further. Mm. But I think certainly in in books, there are some great examples of that. I'm, I think of Patrick O'Brien, uh, his Napoleonic um, series of 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 set in ships, which are basically two characters that that. Um, have an extraordinary relationship with each other and men. so it's not just the relationship it's the slow character development yes, that yes. actually is more rewarding for the reader because you feel clever to have noticed yes it it, it, it gives you a much more of a much bigger canvas to to develop characters and um and yes you know you could say well you know a perfect novel is a is a moment in time and it's, it doesn't have to have that that um uh, that, that length which you can get from a long series but um, but yes, you can certainly get that. The other other point I wanted to was was raising, which I thought was interesting, is the is the tense that that the two different writers used, and Ellie using the the, the present tense to describe her, the events in her book, and Leslie using using this historic tense, and um, and they also mentioned this this notion of um, kind of hindsight that, that 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 authors sometimes come up with, and so they say beginning of a chapter this was the worst mistake she was ever going to make. And you think, oh, God, I don't want that. Spoiler alert! I don't want that. I, don't, I, I, I like to be in the present with the characters. So you're, so you're there with them. You're kind of um, uh, experiencing what they're experiencing. And, and you know, when somebody knocks on the door, you know, it happens. It's a moment in time. And if you say, and then somebody knocked on the door and it was, it was, it was disaster ensued or something, you don't really, you know, you don't get that sense of immediacy. And I think that's, that's something... I think that... you still have to self-edit, even with the present tense. I think it's easier... Um, to get it right but there's still a temptation to um, artificially put in jeopardy so uh, particularly to the end of a chapter it would be you know little did she know but behind the door you know um, (laughs) yeah I I I still want want too much jeopardy I I like a little bit of jeopardy it's it's great to just drive the narrative along yeah but not this kind of on the edge of your seat and you're feeling slightly sick because of what's going to happen to your to your great character. But that to pick up your first comment as well links with that because I think the the better you as the reader come to know the character, the more you have the sense of jeopardy. You don't need telling. It's that lovely, delicious feeling. We think, 
oh no, I know what she's going to do. She's going to go charging in there because yeah. of X. Because you know I love that's, it. that's what she does. Yes. Yeah. No, so that's good. So, so I really, I really enjoyed listening, listening to you, you chatting. You seem to be having a very good time. Oh, they're lovely. They're great <laughs> pals and lovely, lovely people and really generous and helpful people with, you know, when I was there doing Leslie was on I think you know you, you'll have heard I was doing the MA and Leslie w- was helping Greg Moss um, and it was just it was a lovely time so Tim wanted to tell us what's coming up well first of all, I ought to mention Locked Room by Ellie Griffiths which is uh, coming out which is out now I've it, heard it's very good I heard it's very good and um, that was her 14th novel so uh, that's the first one I wanted to mention Last one at the party by Bethany Cliff. I may have mentioned this as having read this uh, about about a year ago when it came out. Um, last one at the party is the story of a woman who is the last person left alive in the country, or or is she? Is it this country? This country. Um, there's an awful plague. We've had one of those, but this is a really awful one, which everyone dies apart from her. And it's kind of black comedy because. Um, she has her issues and her problems, and she uh, first thing she does is, is go around to all the smart hotels and drink all the cocktails that she can make, uh, and have lots of hot baths because there's still hot water. But uh, of course, gradually all these things stop, and it becomes a little bit, little bit bleaker, and she starts trying to find out if there's anyone else alive. But um, anyway, that that's the story. That's the setup, and it's it's uh, told in her in a style of somebody who's who's a bit of a bit of a party girl. Uh, who um, suddenly there's no one else to party with? So it's a, it's a it's a good good story actually. But Presumably like, that's in the present tense. Oh, now you've got me there. I can't ah, remember because otherwise <laughs> we know that she survives. Uh, Home cooked by Kate Humble. This is a as it as it you might have guessed is a cookery book. Um, it's basically her hundred recipes of of home cooking. It's nothing nothing very flashy. It's not it's not big smart uh, dinner party style expensive restaurant type cooking it's home cooking and um you may know her kate humble from spring watch and autumn watch and escape to the farm and any number of tv series i can see that the photographs are absolutely stunning so if anyone likes watching kate humble on the television i think they'd love the book is it family recipes or it's is it seasonal seasonal yeah so we've got spring but it does you know it ought to be sort of local farm stuff no, and it is very very what farmy does it say based, on the back i, I always look on the back and cover. it's very farmy based celebration of simple seasonal home cooking full of flavor comfort and joy more than 100 recipes from kit humble's kitchen table this is food to share from breakfast time to evening meal for lazy days busy weekends or gatherings and everything in between so the way the book is is structured is that it it does it season by season so uh and then meal by meal so within spring you've got spring breakfast spring lunches spring Spring teas, pre spring dinners. Oh, so it takes you through so an entire day. Takes, uh, spring pina coladas, I see here. Oh heavens! Uh, with um, gorse flower white rum made in Dartmoor. So I think it's sort of it's some interesting things uh, that that you can that you can without being too flashy. Uh, it's fairly it's very much a home kitchen and um, ingredients that you'd be able to find anywhere. And those photographs are lovely. And lovely photographs, yeah. And the last book I wanted to mention is Gift of a Radio by Justin Webb. Justin Webb, you may know from Today programme. He often does, he often, he's often one of the presenters, you know, one of these broadcasters. Um, and he writes about his early life. Uh, when he was a, he was, he was a, 
it's a really interesting chap actually. He writes he writes really well. Um, he had a difficult childhood. He'd never met his father, uh, who was a famous broadcaster, and never but never acknowledged him. Um, and lived with a stepfather who had very poor mental health and a mother who who was quite eccentric, I would say. And, and uh, grand. And she had a different way of seeing the world. <laughs> I think that's a safe way to put it. Um, and uh, but she she was uh, yeah quite eccentric. And um, but but he writes really well, and he 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 brings across um, what it was like to 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 be that boy growing up. And um, so it's not about his his life as a broadcaster. It's not about the success he then made as a journalist and broadcaster. It's just about his childhood. So um, I don't know whether he'll ever write a sequel to it, but I I think it would be worth reading if he did. I think it's interesting as part of that. Um assumption that people have if you speak a certain way if you have been to university and so on that therefore you must be middle class and he you know I read a review of it this Sunday I think and you know he was saying actually he was tremendously working class his mother kept trying to you know she would be doing the whole Nancy Mitford you know it's not the toilet it's the lavatory or whatever and um, I can't remember the example they gave but some extraordinary thing um, that words that she would use to deliberately mark them as being upper crust when they absolutely weren't they they would be receiving food parcels if they were living now you know they'd be going to the food bank but anyway so there we are that was brilliant, Tim. Thank you. I'm actually going to, you'll see the link with my backlisted book, which is Dog Songs by Mary Oliver. So more dogs. More dogs. She's a winner. Not of the, that you're obsessed or anything about dogs. Are you going to stop soon? Okay. Mary Oliver is winner <laughs> of the Pulitzer Prize, but mostly she is quoted on Instagram and so on for her very heartfelt other poems, which I've got to be honest, I haven't read. Which are not about dogs. Um, but this one, because it's called dog songs okay. is, is about entirely dogs. to do with dogs Good. and then you'll see i'm going to read one poem from here if you can bear it um called the poetry teacher the university gave me a new elegant classroom to teach in only one thing they said you can't bring your dog it's in my contract i said i had made sure of that we bargained and I moved to an old classroom in an old building, propped the door open, kept a bowl of water in the room. I could hear Ben, among other voices, barking, howling in the distance. Then they would all arrive, Ben, his pals, maybe an unknown dog or two, all of them thirsty and happy. They drank, they flung themselves down among the students. The students loved it. They all wrote thirsty happy poems. At the back there's a little bit of prose but I want to extol not the sweetness nor the placidity of the dog but the wilderness out of which he cannot step entirely and from which we benefit. For wilderness is our first home too and in our wild ride into modernity with all its concerns and problems we need also all the good attachments to that origin that we can keep or restore. Dog is one of the messengers of that rich and still magical first world. The dog would remind us of the pleasures of the body with its graceful physicality and the acuity and rapture of the senses and the beauty of forest and ocean and rain and our own breath. There is not a dog that romps and runs but we learn from him. 
The other dog, the one that all its life walks leashed and obedient down the sidewalk, is what a chair is to a tree. It is a possession only, the ornament of a human life. Such dogs can remind us of nothing large or noble or mysterious or lost. They cannot make us sweeter or more kind. Only unleashed dogs can do that. They are a kind of poetry themselves when they are devoted not only to us, but to the wet night, to the moon and the rabbit smell in the grass and their own bodies leaping forward. Lovely. I leave you that. that one. And I bet your book, your, um, oh, Last Woman at the Party, that one, I bet she doesn't find a dog. She's got some chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Not the same. Because this, the last, very oh, no, last bit. she does bit, have a dog. Does she have a she dog? Have a dog. I'm, ha- I'm yeah. going to read it now then. So, a dog. Um, yeah. And it Very says, nice. we are caught by the old affinity, a joyfulness, his great and seemly pleasure in the physical world. Because of the dog's joyfulness, our own is increased. It is no small gift. It is not the least reason why we should honour as well as love the dog of our own life and the dog down the street and all the dogs not yet born. What would the world be like without musical rivers or the green and tender grass? What would this world be like without dogs? That's what made me think of it. Uh, Well, there you are. I love it. And that's also to you. Leslie and Ellie, because Ellie has cats very much, also a dog, but very much she's more of a cat person, which I think you heard. Um, And Leslie has her own dog, and that also appears in her work. So I salute the animals, let's say, of the world, the chickens included. Tim, thank you. That was was a good one, despite your rudeness and... (laughs) (laughs) So, Tim, do we have a guest for next month? Well, I'm hoping that Martin uh, might come along um, to talk about his books. I'm sure he didn't enjoy that. And he has got the most wonderful radio voice, being a a professional broadcaster. Uh, So that would be great. That would be lovely. I look forward to that. And, um, of course, you can find us in all the usual podcast places, wherever you normally do. And we love hearing your comments and recommendations. And also, if you're a local book club, do let us know and we'll give you a shout out in the next edition and tell us what books you're reading. Fantastic. Great idea. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly and produced by John Wellsman. Queen of the Borders. I wanted to get a head start because I don't think I did the previous year. King of the Allotments. So I've always been keen on gardening, forever. Petersfield Gardening Royalty. Growing together on Shine Radio. Give it a go this year, you never know, and we're here on hand if you have any questions. Growing together with Claire Venice and Steve Amos. New every month and always online at shineradio.uk. Shine Radio.